15 seconds. Guidance is internal. 10, 9, ignition sequence start. Space nuts. 5, 4, 3, 2, 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 5, 4, 3, 2, 1. Space nuts. Astronauts report it feels good. Hello once again. Thanks for joining us. This is the Space Nuts podcast. My name's Andrew Dunkley, your host, and joining me as always, Professor Fred Watson, astronomer at large. Hello, Hello Fred. Hello. How, How are, are you, you doing, Andrew? I'm yeah, well. I'm well, thank you. Yeah, we're both well. <laughs> Hopefully. Which is good in these in this day and age. Mm. Yes. Yeah. I was tested on Friday, so I know that as of Friday I was okay. Yeah, we, we're talking about the uh, the new COVID cluster uh, which broke out in the Northern Beaches area of Sydney. Uh, at last count, there were 90 cases. And I think uh, from what I've heard, they've, they've managed to haul it in. Uh, but I, I'm sort of preceding my comments because the state premier hasn't made her latest statement yet. So we'll have to wait and see on that. And by the time this podcast is out, we'll, we'll know where it stands. But uh, it looks like they got it early and they've, they've really slowed down the potential for it to get out and about, which is great news. But it, it scotched our plans. We were going to Sydney to see our boys next week. That's uh, not going to happen. So unfortunate, mm -hmm. but uh, you've got, got to be safe and we'll catch up with them again at some other stage. Now, Fred, we have got uh, an interesting episode this week. A very interesting episode because you don't know what's happening. You've, um, <laughs> you've been left out in the dark, yeah, which is yeah, part, of, part of your job. Let's face it. That's part of your job to be <laughs> left out in the dark. But uh, we, we are doing questions without notice today. Questions without notice. So we've got a bunch of audio questions here from uh, a whole array of people all around the world who um, have sent them in very kindly and we appreciate that. And we're just gonna play them and see how Fred goes. So um, totally unrehearsed, totally without notice. So let's just get straight into it. Oh, no, before we do, Fred, um, I, I, yeah. I must say, I, I tried to look at the Great Conjunction the other night and I was uh, very disappointed because it rained. I mean, it poured here. The cloud was thick. You couldn't see past it, and uh, we, we missed the, the event. Now, I did have a look a couple of nights earlier, and I did take a photo, but unfortunately, my little camera just didn't have the oomph to get a real good close-up picture of uh, Saturn and Jupiter. But uh, apparently, you got a, a look at it uh, last night, did you? Yeah, I did, yeah. I, I'd, um, there was a lovely uh, occasion last week. Um, when the moon and Jupiter and Saturn were pretty close together in the sky. And I got some nice pictures of that. This was before the conjunction, though. This was on Thursday. Ah, OK. Um, so um, the conjunction day, yes, the whole of pretty well, the whole of New South Wales was washed out by cloud sure. and rain. And it poured down here in Sydney. There was no chance of, uh, of seeing anything. And I um, tweeted my disappointment. Then last night, though, knowing that the planets were still pretty close together, I think still less than two degrees apart. Mm. Um, I had a look again. Uh, there was, at sunset, there was a, the most beautiful sheet of clouds being lit from the underneath by the sun. And that was a disappointment because I thought, well, we're not going to see anything through that. Uh, but it was so stunning. I, I tweeted a picture of it uh, because it really looked great. But then um, at about half past nine, when I knew that, the, that Jupiter and Saturn were about to set uh, in the western sky, I had a look out again, 
and they had gone be below the cloud deck. Ah. So we could see them. Wow. We could see them. Uh, lo very low down in the sky, actually getting mixed up with the trees that surround our property. But uh, through binoculars, it was just stunning with Jupiter directly above Saturn, very, very close by. Um, I could just about make out a hint of uh, the, the, the moons of Jupiter. Uh, it was very poor conditions because they were so low on the horizon, but mm. and it was only um, 7 by 50 binocular, but still uh, we got them. And it was just brilliant to see. Uh, so the conjunction itself must have been truly spectacular uh, because 24 hours later it was still looking pretty damn good. Yeah. Uh, so I'm, I was very glad to get that. I, I saw some absolutely brilliant photographs yeah. on yeah. Instagram and, and Twitter and a few other places. Uh, pe people with really good equipment, obviously, and, and good uh, telescopic equipment that were able to get yeah. such really vivid pictures of those two planets close up. And, uh, you know, I, I congratulate them for that. They, they did a fabulous job. Indeed, that's right. So uh, it, you're quite right that with um, a, a telescope or a telephoto lens, uh, the two planets would be resolved as planets and you'd see the details on them, mm. but within the same field of view. It's just fantastic. It is. Yeah. Yeah. Terrific <laughs> yeah. stuff. And which you just reminded me, I've got a um, another camera that I could have used, which has got a, a super duper lens. And I, I never think I, I didn't think of getting it out and dusting yeah. it off. I should have done that. Not too late. I might have a crack tonight. Yeah, have a look tonight because it's still worthwhile. Yeah. Um, yeah, hopefully the sky will be clear. Fingers crossed. Okay, let's go to our uh, first audio question. And uh, a question without notice for you, Fred. This one <laughs> comes from Kate. Now, I've got to take these off so that we can pick up the audio. So <laughs> bear with us. This is all so, you know, techn technologically advanced. Here we go. Hi, my name is Kate. I heard the episode on the 3rd of December. And the first question a guy asked about whether the universe proposed that the universe was round. And it made me question because I was reading something about that this morning. If, are there any theories about what the universe, whatever shape it is, what it's suspended in? Uh, a silly question I guess but I'm just curious what do people what do scientists believe the universe or universes if they're more than one what does it exist in if you could have any thoughts on that that would be great thanks okay thank you Kate um, Kate's from Australia <laughs> mate I'm sure uh, yeah good. what is the universe suspended in yeah, it is a brilliant question. And it, it's one of these questions that there really isn't an answer to. We, we can th theorize what the possibilities might be, uh, but there is no certainty at the moment. The main issue, I guess, is how you define universe, because the formal definition of a universe is, well, it's the universe, because yeah. it is everything you can ever detect or, or see. Um, or measure. Uh, it's, in other words, the word itself precludes there being anything beyond it. And that actually is the way most astrophysicists tend to look at the universe as a single entity, uh, which is probably without a bound, a boundary, um, although it may not be infinite. And what I mean by that is if you think of the Earth, uh, the Earth is certainly not infinite but it doesn't have any, the surface of the Earth doesn't have any boundaries. 
uh, in terms of you know your physical ability to move around it. Mm. it clearly, there's, there's ocean and things of that sort. But the the surface of the Earth is boundless, but the uh, the actual Earth itself is not infinite. It's a finite size. So the universe is a you can think of it as a kind of three dimensional analog of that that curved surface of the Earth, um, and that is really the only way we can get our heads around it. It may actually be infinite. Uh, there may be no limits to it. There are limits to how far we can see. The cosmic microwave background shuts a curtain down at about uh, a look-back time of 13.8 billion years. But it may be, okay, so it may be that the universe doesn't have to exist in anything. It is everything. Uh, and its beginning was the beginning of space and the beginning of time, whatever that event was. Mm. Now, some scientists think that's a bit unsatisfactory. Of course. So, um, and they wonder about other universes. I mean, the, the you know, um, Martin Rees, the astronomer royal, he was one of the early proponents of the idea of a multiverse, uh, multiple universes. Uh, and then you, you say, okay, well, where are they? <laughs> so, you know, is there... Uh, you know, what, what does the universe sit in, exactly as Kate has said? Uh, so uh, there, the usual thinking on that is a higher dimensional space. And so um, that gets you heavily into mathematics, because in mathematics, you can have as many dimensions as you want. Um, and, you know, geometry lets you do that. And in fact, most of the thinking on this is very geometrically orientated in its mathematical formulation. So if you if you can imagine, perhaps, uh, you know, there are, we know that our universe has the three dimensions of space, up, down, side to side, backwards and forwards, yeah. uh, and one dimension of time. If you had a, a fifth dimension, for example, which was hidden from us for some reason, could um, other universes sit within that dimension? Uh, and actually one of the, one of the thinking it's something uh, a lot one of the thought processes along these lines is something called m theory and the m stands for whatever you like actually it could be mem membrane is probably the, the usual word yep. that universes are imprinted on something that is like a two-dimensional membrane but it's in three dimensions and these membranes float around in a higher dimensional space uh, that's perhaps the most easy to get your head around view of what the universe might be like. Now, how do we detect what's in the, um, it's actually called, what's it called? It's got a name. It, it's called the void by Doctor Who. Ah. But in in, um, in astrophysics, we've got another name, which is eluding me at the moment. Uh, that's what you get for questions. It, without it is, yeah, it is. It will come to me in a minute. Uh, anyway, this, this, this high dimensional space, um, how do you detect it? Uh, so maybe, uh, and some people have looked at the possibility of seeing evidence of other universes through the imprint of patterns on the cosmic microwave background radiation, this um, hiss, you know, um, basically hiss all around the sky in the radio microwave region of the spectrum that is the flash of the Big Bang. That's got these hot and cold spots imprinted on it. And by looking at patterns in those, we can say a lot about the Big Bang. But some scientists have said, maybe we can say a lot about other universes mm. as well. Yeah. Um, there's multi-universes in one of my books. Oh, of course. <laughs> Uh, I, I would expect nothing less from you, Andrew. <laughs> um, but uh, when you when you said that 
it, it might be infinite, which means it never ends. Uh, therefore, it can't be suspended in anything. How do you get your head around that? I mean, well, you don't really. Uh, you, you, <laughs> you know, it is a puzzle. Um, it's something, it's so counterintuitive to our thinking mm. because we're used to a, a three dimensional world with a dimension of time. With limits. That we can't do anything about With limits. With limits, yeah. that's right. Yeah. Um, I, a good question. I, yeah, not yeah. a silly question at all, Kate. Wonderful question because uh, I suppose that's where astronomy is at its best because they're trying to answer these impossible questions yes. or improbable yeah. questions. Yeah. Uh, the the yeah. things that we just, try to understand that are beyond our comprehension. Uh, I suppose that's the big challenge in, in astronomy, Fred, uh, to come up with answers. Indeed. I think I've remembered what we call uh, the <laughs> the space between universes yeah. in astrophysics, but I'm just checking that I'm not oh, okay. uh, making this up. You know, well, <laughs> I was talking to a guy the other day and uh, it was actually an on-air live to air interview and I asked him a question and he just couldn't think of a certain name or word and and he said to me, you know, when this is happening, I call. I say my brain is buffering. So <laughs> I thought that was brilliant. Very nice. So Very let, nice. Let's spread that one around. Yeah. If you can't think of someone's um, name, okay, in the it's it's, uh, it's actually I've, I've, I've remembered correctly. It's called the bulk. The bulk. Uh, the bulk. And if you uh, look that up and define it, it tells you it's the higher dimensional space between. Universes are membranes. Very good. All right. Thank you, Kate. For now, your... Andrew, for some reason, I've lost your voice altogether. Oh. Uh, I can't hear anything you're saying, um, and I'm not sure why. Okay. This is odd. Hang on. <laughs> well, hang on. Let me try again. Okay. Can you hear me now? Yeah, for some reason, probably because I went to another web page, it muted your mic. All right. Am I unmuted now? Yeah. You're very unmuted, right. but definitely. Well, please don't <laughs> teach my wife how to mute me because <laughs> she knows already, doesn't she? It's hard to get a word in now anyway. So, all right, <laughs> let us continue. Uh, this yeah. this uh, is another question without notice from Jeremy, and he's in Utah. So here we go. Oh, great. Hello, Fred and Andrew. My name is Jeremy from Utah. I have a question about your favorite subject black holes and the question i have is one i haven't heard though before and it is whether the event horizon of a black hole can have ripples on the surface if, if there is such a thing anyway i love your show and i will have a listen yeah well i'm glad that'll make one of us uh thanks jeremy <laughs> uh, yeah black whole event horizon does it have ripples what a great question mm. um and i think so uh, once again this is you know coming from uh uh what i know about black holes which is mostly gleaned from other scientists i've spoken to and things of that yep. sort so the event horizon is in a sense uh an illusory aspect uh it is the point at which the the light from the black hole cannot escape from you know beyond so you can't see anything beyond the event horizon mm -hmm. um and i think because of that and because the black hole itself is a single point by definition it's defined to be a, a dimensionless point in space that means that the event horizon must be a perfect sphere uh it must 
take, you know, basically it's, it's got to be at the same distance everywhere from that single point. So my guess is that the answer to that is no. Um, but it is a great question. And I, next time I'm talking to uh, one of my black hole specialist colleagues, uh, who sadly are mostly unavailable at the moment because of the COVID lockdown here in the Northern Beaches. Um, <clears throat> next time I'm doing that, though, I will ask that question. It's a great question, but I think the answer is no. Uh, no, no, ripples. no ripples. So it, it would be a yeah. perfect sphere. Yeah. Yes. Which yeah. make because it which which Sorry, basically means that the term black hole is inaccurate. Uh, look, it's a term that uh, is uh, is cobbled together. That's yeah. right. It's not a good name. Um, it's one that was suggested in the 1960s, and it was. Uh, he's he's, yes, buff he's buffering well again. Physicist. <laughs> I am buffering. That's right. John Wheeler, <laughs> who um, coined it. Um, I wrote about the the, the naming actually in um, uh, Cosmic Chronicles, or. Uh, exploding stars and invisible planets. If you're As it's called overseas. The USA. Yes, yes that's mm. right. Yeah. Mm. All right, Jeremy, thanks for the question. Um, simple answer, no, probably. Um, probably. But, you know, we could do a sequel. <laughs> Who knows? <laughs> but thanks for the question. Uh, we are going to take a little break, uh, but um, uh, we've got a whole bunch more questions without notice for Fred soon on the Space Nuts Ooh. podcast. Space Nuts. This is the Space Nuts podcast. Uh, Andrew Dunkley here with, of course, uh, the good Professor Fred Watson. And being our last program of the year, probably a good opportunity to send out some thank yous to our patrons, the people who've uh, put a little bit of money in each month to support the podcast. Uh, you know who you are, and we are most grateful for your support of the podcast idea that the audience brought to us we didn't uh we didn't even know that the concept existed to be honest but uh here we are and thank you for all your support uh whether it's through patreon.com or through uh supercast or acast whatever it is and of course now we've got package deals uh there's all sorts of ways you can support the podcast even if you just want to make a one-off donation totally up to you and totally voluntary we will never say you have to but uh to those who have decided to um get on board thank you very much for um for doing that for us now fred let's continue with our questions without notice and this one comes from uh, andrew who is in victoria but not victoria australia victoria in british columbia hey andrew and fred this is andrew here long-time listener from victoria bc canada I have a question for you about the orbits of spacecraft. I was reading up on the Dawn mission recently and how close it got to the Ceres uh, dwarf planet. I noticed that apparently it got as close as around 30 kilometers above the surface. And uh, my question for you is, hypothetically, how close could a spacecraft get to a celestial body? Would it hypothetically be possible for an astronaut standing on the surface of the moon to see a spacecraft, you know, whiz past them at just a few meters above the ground and the spacecraft to survive. Of course, if it was going fast enough, I'm sure this would be possible, but just based on the speeds they generally travel, how close could a, a spacecraft get to the surface of, you know, either the moon or uh, another celestial body that's, you know, relatively large? Thanks. Thanks for taking my question and uh, keep up the good work. 
Thank you, Andrew. Uh, yeah, I, I suppose, Fred, it depends on the celestial body, doesn't it? Um, well, it does, yes, of course, but that's a fantastic question. Um, and uh, so, for example, if you consider the Earth, um, what stops you getting low to the surface is the atmosphere. So and, and, that's how and the mountains. Space yeah. <laughs> we'll do the mountains in a minute. <laughs> it's, the, it's the atmosphere that... Um, because your orbital speed, the, the, the orbital speed uh, of a spacecraft, you know, the typical orbital height of about 200, 300 kilometres is nearly eight kilometres per second. And uh, it, it gets slower as the further away you go. So the nearer you get to the surface, the faster you, you've got to go to stay in orbit. Mm. But with the Earth, you've got the atmosphere and, and clearly the atmospheric friction at that speed just burns you up and, and there's no... No surviving that. But um, I think, you know, the question is on the money because uh, there's not really, uh, with a, a body that has no significant atmosphere, and the Moon and probably Ceres do have a gaseous envelope, but it is extremely rarefied. It's called an exosphere rather than an atmosphere. There's so little in it. Uh, that it's almost not there, but it does have an atmosphere, and that, if you, you know, if you, that could provide a limit as far as the moon's concerned. But um, if it was a totally airless body with no atmosphere whatsoever, you're right. I think it would be the mountains that would be the limiting factor. <laughs> uh, they would decide how low you could get. Now, the the, the reason why. With a body like Ceres, I think um, the question's correct that uh, 30 kilometres was the minimum height. The same is true of Lun Lunar Reconnaissance Orbiter. I think yeah. the minimum height of that spacecraft is 30 kilometres. And what you're doing there is choosing a height that lets you get some useful data from it. Um, you know, because if you're too near the surface, you're not going to be able to get decent imagery of the surface, even though it's very near. The fact that it's whizzing by so fast makes it very difficult. And so that will be a compromise in terms of what useful information you want to get from the mission, uh, to, to, uh, but yet get the nearest that you can to the surface looking at. And we've seen marvellous um, images from Lunar Reconnaissance Orbiter, in particular of all the Apollo landing sites. So, oh, yes. Um, it, it, I, I suspect there is no... There's no physical limit until you start hitting things on the surface <laughs> if you've got a completely airless world. Um, there would be another consideration, and that is that most bodies in the solar system are not perfectly spherical. So, um, you know, while you might be uh, 100 metres above the surface at one point, you might be hitting the surface at another, usually the equator yes. where it's slightly flatter. Um, so that's another consideration. But no, really interesting question again. Uh, and as I said, it's, a, it's all a compromise. And uh, in answer to his uh, question about what astronauts standing on the moon would see, that they would easily see a passing uh, spacecraft, I imagine. Yes, yes, you would, yeah, especially if it was going, <laughs> it was close enough to be going at that really yeah. dramatic speed. Well, it wouldn't, wouldn't, wouldn't be much, well, at speed, yeah, but uh, even on Earth, you can, you can see passing aircraft quite easily. You can see passing spacecraft at very high altitude, um, crossing the sky so so very quickly so uh, at 30 meters yeah i reckon you'd probably see that <laughs> most definitely i used to live uh, 
I used to live near an RAF base in Scotland, and quite often we had jets almost at supersonic speed, uh, less than a, a kilometre, you know, pro yeah. pro probably less than a thousand feet to, to use aer aeronautical measure. And they, <laughs> yeah, they certainly lifted your hair because I had hair in those days that uh, could be lifted. Well, that's, that's funny because I, I grew up uh, not far from what is uh, Williamtown RAAF base. And oh, yeah. Yeah, when do. I was growing up, the the um, the fighter bomber of the day was the Mirage, the French uh, Dassault Mirage, oh, and they quite often were very naughty and broke the sound barrier. They weren't allowed to, they weren't supposed to, but occasionally I'd be about out in the backyard killing ants or playing cricket or something, and we'd go, you just. You'd hear it, you'd feel it. It uh, not at the same time, yeah, uh, right. but it was uh, yeah. And and they they quite often got into trouble for that. Yeah. All right, uh, Andrew. Thanks for your question. Let's move on to our next question. This comes from Spain, but I, I must confess, I I can't catch the name. I can't catch the name. But um, maybe Fred will pick it up. Um, but uh, let's uh, let's see how we go. This one. Uh, well, no, I'm not allowed to tell you. It's a question without notice. Here we go. Hi, Andrew and Fred. This is Marcos Cremades from Spain. Uh, the other day I heard one of your podcasts and you talked about uh, the precession of the rotation axis of the Earth. And Fred said that that, that took 26 billion years. And I wonder how the hell can we know that time, okay? And just that, uh, I love the show, enjoy pretty much all your comments and I practice very much English with all that. Thank you very much. Bye-bye. Thank you so much. Nice to hear from uh, somebody in Spain. I didn't catch the name. Did you catch the name, Fred? It was, yeah. Sadly, no. But, no, it, but, but it's very nice to hear. Very nice. To yeah. yeah. Um, now, um, I, I gather from the question, he's wondering about um, how we know it took so long for the Earth to reach its orbital axis. I, I think that's the gist so of it's it. The yeah, it's the, it's the precession of the Earth's axis. So the Earth um, is spinning. And if you think of a spinning top on a table, you can see it's spinning, but it also, the axis wanders around yeah. as well. And that's the phenomenon of precession, and the Earth does it. And it goes around once, not in 26 million years, but 26,000 years. Ah. It's a 26,000-year precession. Um, I hope I didn't say 26 million. I thought <laughs> I did, because that's it's very much in, in here. 26,000 years. In fact, I can all, almost remember the last time it was, uh, it was around. So um, it's actually extremely easy to measure, because the result of that is a change in the apparent measured position of all objects in the sky. Um, if you think of it as the Earth rotates, we base our uh, measuring system of where celestial objects are on the equator. The Earth's right. So the Earth's equator is, is basically wobbling around with this 26,000-year period. And so whenever we... Um, we uh, when we specify the position of a celestial object, we have to specify what's called the equinox. Uh, and that's the, the it, it's, it's to cover precession. So most of the positions we use these days 
are corrected to the equinox of 1950.0, and that means where the precessional axis was in 1950, because it's moving all the time. With a 26,000-year period, it, it kind of, you know, when you're measuring things with positions of less than an arc second, uh, that actually moves quite quickly, and it's pretty easy to measure. Okay. Uh, it would be harder. It would be harder if it was 26 million years. Yes. Uh, that would be more difficult to do. Yeah, I imagine. 26,000 years is, is easy. In fact, it's slightly, if I remember rightly, it's slightly less. I can't remember the exact number, but it's known to, you know, probably a few months, the, the actual amount. Mm. Well, we can fix that with a leap decade or something. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, leap decade if you're right. Yeah. Let's do one backwards. We can all get younger. Um, now, uh, but thanks for the question and certainly lovely to hear from somebody in Spain. Uh, our next question, Fred, comes from uh, a fellow. I, I think um, Russell has asked uh, many questions of us. Now, I don't know if he's trying to be tricky by changing his name to Rusty, but um, I doubt it. That's probably his nickname. But uh, he is in Donnybrook in Western Australia. Fred and Andrew, g'day. It's Rusty Nuts from... Donnybrook in WA. My question is about stellar abundances and I'm wondering if there's been a study done on young galactic clusters on abundances of different spectral classes and I'm wondering if that uh, study would lend some insight into the makeup of globulars. Fred, you, you've told us a few times that globulars are made up of very old stars, but they can't have always been that way. And I'm wondering if a study of young galactic clusters will lend some insights into what might have been in the globulars and what, what could be there now in terms of what we can't see. We know we can see probably nearly all K-class stars, but uh, I think the red dwarves of anything so far away would be very difficult to see. White dwarves, virtually impossible. And of course, we can't see the neutron stars or black holes that may be there. Okay, I, I think the, uh, the system cut him off because he was... <laughs> He had a lot to say, uh, but Rusty, thanks for your question. Rusty Nuts, um, probably better than Space Nuts, I'm not sure. But uh, yeah, uh, uh, start, started with stellar abundances. So let's, let's sort of go there first. So um, Rusty should be an astrophysicist because that's all basic astrophysics. What is he okay. talking about? Wow. Um, except um, when we use the term abundances, we're usually referring to the mix of chemical elements in the atmosphere of a star. And I think what Rusty is referring to is how many uh, stars of different spectral classes, the categories into which we, uh, we put stars, which are basically based on their temperature. Mm. Um, so... Um, but, uh, Rusty, you're absolutely right. Um, open clusters are probably the most studied objects in the galaxy um, because of what they can tell us. And it goes back to the earliest days of astrophysics. Uh, um, when people looked at open clusters, they realised that, first of all, they were probably seeing things which were all born at the same time, so they're the same age. 
uh, and that also that they're all that they're effectively at the same distance, so you don't have to worry about you know any um, distance considerations when you're looking at their brightnesses. Uh, and that's why these clusters have been such important bedrocks of the study of astrophysics. And I should just um, I should just uh, put, put the backstory here uh, because we recognise two quite distinct uh, types of star clusters in the world of astronomy. And uh, these are, of course, on a much smaller scale than galaxies, which are hundreds of billions of stars. Uh, an open cluster, and it's sometimes called a galactic cluster because you see them mostly in the plane, the disk of the Milky Way, um, they typically have a, maybe a thousand stars, a hundred to a thousand stars. The best known are the, is the Pleiades, uh, the Seven Sisters, the Hyades cluster, which is not very far away from the Pleiades in the sky. These are well-known objects. They're very, very pretty to look at through telescopes. They're certainly my um, my um, favourite things with a small telescope uh, because they, they kind of twinkle away in space there. But they are uh, often still encased in some of the the gas cloud that they were formed from, the gas and dust cloud. If you photograph the Hyades with um, a you know, reasonably decent telescope, you'll see the blue light, which is dust scattering the light of the young stars. Mm. And that tells us that um, open clusters uh, or galactic clusters, they're young. Their ages are measured in millions of years. Whereas now globular clusters are entirely different. They're typically hundreds of thousands to a million stars. The bigger, the bigger ones are around about a million. Uh, the two biggest ones uh, in our uh, in our neighbourhood, or the two um, most spectacular ones in the sky, are actually both in the southern hemisphere: Omega Centauri and uh, 47 Tucani. So they are they're quite different objects. They're old, exactly as Rusty said, but they are they have a different origin because we think now that they are the nuclei of dwarf galaxies that have been ripped up by uh, the gravity of our own galaxy. In other words, they're remnants of uh, galaxies that have been engorged into, into our own Milky Way. So that all the outer stars have been stripped off by gravitational forces, and you're left with this tightly packed nucleus of stars, some of which we do know contain black holes. Um, so they are a study in their own right, and we we can't really make comparisons between open clusters and globular clusters because they they have two different evolutionary paths. Uh, open clusters being new objects, relatively new in the galaxy. Globular clusters being among the most ancient that we can that we can find. Great suggestion, though. Yeah, fascinating. <laughs> Thank you, Rusty. Thanks for your question. Thanks for uh, your support. I know you've. Um sent us questions many times yeah. and uh, yeah they're usually quite let me put this um in a delicate very very um uh, so i'm buffering i'm buffering um yeah detailed very detailed and perceptive if I yes very so. perceptive indeed thanks rusty appreciate yeah. it yeah, you're listening to the space nuts podcast andrew dunkley here with fred watson Space Nuts. This is the Space Nuts podcast, episode 200 and something, 34, 234. Uh, our last program uh, for 2020. And again, uh, thank you to everybody, uh, particularly our sponsors. Um, already thank the patrons who've done a fabulous uh, job for us this year, but uh, our sponsors, 
for for getting behind the program and, and believing in it because um, we started out with nothing and what do you get when it's all over? You get nothing. And so we've had nothing to offer and they've still supported us. So we, we were very thankful to our sponsors who, uh, who have also put uh, a little bit um, into, the, into the coffers of the Space Nuts podcast. And our social media supporters, the people who um, talk to each other on the Space Nuts podcast group on Facebook uh, and those that follow us on social media, whatever the platform, thank you to you too. Uh, much appreciated. Now, Fred, uh, we've got a few more questions to knock over before the end of the year, which doesn't give us very long. Comes from uh, Damien, and I don't know where Damien's from, but let's uh, let's hear what he's got to say. Question about space, time, and dark matter. When we calculate the mass of the sun and the planets, does Newton's laws of gravitation and Einstein's equation of space time take into account dark matter? I guess not since Newton didn't know about the dark stuff. So does that mean there isn't any dark matter in our solar system? Or it is included in the calculations. Then dark matter is 27% and normal matter is 5%. Is the sun, earth and us most, mostly dark matter? Thanks, guys, for a great show, Damien Huxley. Thank you, Damien. Yeah, I guess Newton... Uh probably wouldn't have known about dark matter. Um, he knew about a lot of things, but uh, in, in working out what he worked out, um, he couldn't have catered for it, could he? No, that's right. And um, it, there's a sense in which you don't need to. Uh, and that is because uh, we believe, and the evidence points to this, that dark matter on the scale of the solar system is pretty uniform. It's not... Uh, anything that would cluster near the sun. Um, it, so it, it's it's one of the unknowns about dark matter mm. is what kind of particle it is. It's thought to be a heavy subatomic particle. There is a lot. There's a lot of research going on, Andrew, today about alternative theories as to what dark matter might be, because all the quests so far haven't really turned turned up what it you know, what we thought it was, a, a subatomic particle that doesn't interact with, with normal matter. Um, so um, it doesn't interact with normal matter. So the sun and planets sit there unaffected by it. But the reason why I take it into account in orbital calculations is because of the scale. Dark matter is uniform on the scale of the solar system. It's a different matter, if I can put it that way, when you look at the, the scale of the galaxy because the galaxy is clearly, uh, it, it, it's obviously influenced by dark matter. And that's how we know dark matter is there, because galaxies don't behave the way that they should if all you, all you can see is all that there is. Yeah. Um, so that's the bottom line. It's all about the, the way that dark matter clumps. It clumps on the scales of galaxies, but doesn't clump on the scale of solar systems. Okay. Wow. Um, and I suppose he's prompted a thought in my mind. So we know it's there. We don't know exactly what it is. We don't know why it is. Uh, we don't know how it is. But is it is it like everywhere? I mean, I'm sitting in a um, not so palatial yeah. office at the moment. Am I surrounded by dark matter? Yes, you are. <laughs> oh. Uh, and it's not interacting with you or with the radio signals, you know, the, the, the sound. It's not interacting with anything. Uh, but you are in it, and I am too, uh, at the ratio of about five to one to normal matter, exactly wow. as Damien said. Yeah. 
That's incredible. Yeah. And it's a, it's a bit spooky, isn't it? It is, it is very say, spooky. Andrew, yeah. That um, there are, there's still a move afoot to try and get rid of it altogether. Um, in other words, or remove it from our thinking. Are, yes. Because one of the first, so back in the 1980s, uh, a physicist called Mordechai Milgram, <clears throat> who's uh, in Israel, he uh, built a theory which is called MOND. And MOND is just short for Modified Newtonian Dynamics. And what it says mm -hmm. is that at very, very low levels of acceleration, um, Newton's laws don't work, that it, 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 the acceleration uh, doesn't behave the way that we think it does. And you only get low levels of acceleration on scales of the galaxy. You don't get them, you know, the levels of acceleration that the, our planets feel as they are orbiting the sun are far too high for the MOM theory to be interested in them. But when you get to very low accelerations, the suggestion is things are different. And that is why we see galaxies rotating in a different way. Um, the problem that MOND has always had, and the reason why it's not universally accepted, although there are still researchers working on it, I know one of them personally, and he listens to this podcast, Peter, how are you doing? <laughs> um, it, the, the reason why it's not really accepted is because um, it doesn't seem to work in other situations, galaxy clusters, and maybe in the overall evolution of the universe. But the, the research that's being done it may be that we are opening up another new path to understanding what dark matter is. And actually, there is a third strand. Um, there's another colleague of mine who is working on the idea that there is a, a, an unusual form of hydrogen, which we've ignored and neglected and not known about. But this hydrogen is actually what makes up the dark matter. Okay. Um, I'm not I'm not too familiar with that theory, but that's something else that's buzzing along in the background. So the research is ongoing and it's being in many ways, it's being uh, prompted or spurred along by the fact that we haven't found what dark matter is yet. Uh, and so, you know, it could well be that one day dark matter, the need for dark matter disappears altogether. Mm. And we find that one of these other theories works. Or, so it's a great, a really interesting question. Or we go back to question one where Kate said, what suspends the universe? Dark matter. <laughs> yes, that's right. Maybe. I don't know. Uh, okay. Uh, Damien, thanks for your question. Fascinating. Let's uh, move on to a, uh, another question from Andrew in Melbourne. I like this one. Hello, Fred and Andrew. Once again, Andrew Mitchell here from Melbourne in Victoria, Australia. Very interested in the last episode. Thought it was a great one. Um, so many interesting topics and questions. Regarding the water. On the moon, I was just wondering whether the um, analysis of that water actually tells us anything more about the water in the solar system and where the water from the moon, hence the Earth, actually came from. Thanks. Bye. Okay. Um, yeah, that's a that's an interesting question to to throw up. There's we know now there's water on the moon. We've got brand new evidence of uh, of where it's at and how much there is. And um, I suppose the question of where it came from in comparison to the Earth and everywhere else it is in the solar system and the galaxy and the universe in general. And I'm 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 of the belief that it is an abundant resource. Uh, across the expanse of the universe. I think that 
I think that will probably be the case because if you take in the theory of, well, if, if we only find water on Earth, then chances are it may not exist anywhere else. But we don't find it just on Earth. It's on Mars. It's on the moon. It's in asteroids. It's, it's everywhere. So, yeah. So, yeah, it's even, even more than that, Andrew. Um, water is the most common two-element molecule in the universe, the entire universe, not just the solar system. Because uh, we see it in, in gas clouds, we see it in, you know, it sounds weird to talk about water in gas clouds, but it's vaporised water, but it is that H2O. Uh, and it is, <clears throat> of all the two element molecules in the universe, it's the most common. Mm. Uh, the most common single element molecule in the universe is, is molecular hydrogen, H2. So, you know, there you are. Ah. Um, so we shouldn't be surprised to find it everywhere. Um, but um, the... Andrew's point is well made because uh, that what allows you to perhaps pinpoint where water has come from is something you and I have talked about before, Andrew, and at great length, which is the ratio of normal water to heavy water. Mm. Heavy water being the one with the, uh, the isotope of hydrogen, which is called deuterium. So um, that ratio is really the... Um, the, the, the fingerprint that we would use to discover where water has come from. And in fact, uh, it gives you slightly contradictory results because some of the comets that have been analysed for the isotope ratio of their water, some of them match the ratio of the water in the Earth's ocean oceans and some doesn't. Mm. So maybe some of the water in, in our oceans came from uh, came from comets, but not all of it. Um, uh, as far as I know, the water on the moon has not yet been able, at least the water near the poles of the moon, which we talked about in that particular episode, um, I don't think it's uh, been studied well enough because we haven't got the ability to do it in order to determine that isotope ratio. And I think that's one of the things that the Artemis astronauts will do uh, when they get to the moon in maybe still 2024, we hope, uh, to sample the, the water content of the rocks, of the soils of the moon, particularly in those regions where they never get sunlight. And then we can perhaps look at the analysis of the isotopes and work out whether that water is the same as the water on Earth, for example, that's the same isotope ratio. Something I think that is really interesting and something exciting to look forward to. Oh, absolutely. On space notes. <laughs> yes, indeed. Uh, it, I think it'll be fascinating because uh, the, the, the moon as an object has been hammered many times by lots and lots of things. So it's possible that the water on the moon got there after it detached from Earth and became our satellite. Uh, but I suppose it's also possible that whatever water was existent on Earth at the time of the event that yeah. created the moon meant it carried that water with it. It's, um, yeah, it'll be interesting to find out which. Could be both. Yes, it might be both, that's right. Mm -hmm. <laughs> All right, Andrew, great question. Thank you very much. Our final question comes from Steve, the bus driver. Now, this is the only question that Fred actually has uh, been privy to in the in the whole program, but uh, it's it's a, a, an interesting question, a little bit of a different spin on um, on astronomy. It, it it sort of really gets down to earth, quite literally. Hi there, Fred. Hi, Andrew. My name's Steve. I'm a bus driver, and I have a question for you guys. 
when I drive the bus, uh, I sometimes open the window and at certain times of the day, uh, sunlight strikes the edge of the window, causing a rainbow. And I, I know a little bit about it, but I, I would like to know more. Um, I've sent some photographs uh, to demonstrate what's happening. And uh, yeah, just interested in a, a few things like uh, traditional rainbow is round and arced. Is that because of rain droplets? And the droplets are round. And in my case, the rainbow is uh, more or less a straight line. That's because the window is a straight line. And uh, I understand it's um, reflection, refraction, dispersion. Um, these things are, are going on. Um, I'm interested to know more scientifically what's happening. And do the colours represent um, elements uh, in the sun? the sun's elements, you know, the hydrogen, nitrogen, whatever the sun's made up of. Um, maybe you could tell me a bit more about that. Thanks very much for your work. I'm a long-time listener and uh, look forward to hearing the answer. Thank you very much, Steve. Steve, the bus driver. Uh, yeah, okay. Uh, and I, I looked at the photos that he, he sent through and uh, quite spectacular colours that he gets through the uh, the edge of his window onto the dashboard or where, wherever. And uh, yeah, they're pretty impressive. Indeed, yeah, that's right. So what's happening there, Steve, is the, um, the, the edge of the glass is acting like a, a, a prism. Um, it's just when you get sunlight in particular passing through um, a, a piece of glass that is not parallel as uh, as a window glass is, then yes, it's refracted uh, and it is also dispersed. And dispersion is the process that produces the, the rainbow, which we technically call a spectrum. Hmm. Uh, so what you're seeing is the spectrum of the sun. Now, you're, you're quite right that it's by looking at such a spectrum that we can detect the elements in the in the sun's atmosphere, but you need uh, a bit more than just the edge of window glass to do that. Um, it needs a device called a spectroscope or a spectrograph, which is uh, which can also use prisms. But it, it it's the way that the light is manipulated inside that lets it identify the specific um, you know small areas of the spectrum where the influence of those elements comes. And in fact, what they do is they, they make dark lines in the spectrum, which we call Fraunhofer lines, after Josef Fraunhofer, who was the, the German scientist who worked out what was going on, he was Bavarian. So um, the value about the elements in the sun, but they don't show up when you, when you just bend the light through, um, you know, through a, a piece of glass. In fact, uh, a crystal sometimes does the same, Often uh, some people have a prism as well, which uh, lets you see this, the beautiful colours. I think they're stunning. Oh, they are. Uh, what, the colours that, what the colours that you can see, though, Steve, tell you is about the temperature of the sun. Um, so uh, the fact that you can see all the colours of the spectrum tell you it's a, a star that is emitting most of its energy in the visible region of the spectrum rather than out in the infrared and in the ultraviolet. Uh, and that's basically, I mean, we've evolved so that we, uh, our eyes are, are most well matched to that part of the spectrum. Uh, but if, you, if our sun was a cool red star, 
then all the blue and green would disappear in that spectrum. You'd just have the red and the orange, uh, probably a red, uh, orange and yellow in it. Uh, and otherwise, and likewise, if it was a very hot star, you'd just have the bluish colours in it rather than the whole spectrum. Um, just going to the earlier part of your question about why a rainbow is curved, but that's a it's a really interesting point, and it, it it does relate to the fact that rain droplets are round, but it's it's not that's not quite what it's all about. It's that you are looking at a very large number of them. So you've got these rain droplets, which are in a whole area that the sun is shining on. And what you see then, the sun's behind you when you see a rainbow, you see this curved spectrum of light. And that's because each of those raindrops is actually taking the light, uh, it refracts it and also reflects it. There's a reflection off the back of the raindrop and that's yeah. why the sun's behind you and it disperses it. So it disperses it into the spectrum. So altogether, sends the light through an angle of 138 degrees, which means it's coming back to you because that's nearer to 180 degrees, which will be coming directly back to you. So it bends it through that angle, but it also disperses it. Now, that is being done by every single raindrop in the whole cloud of raindrops. And that's why you'd see a circle because each one of them is bending the light through that same angle. Mm. And what it means is that the radius of a rainbow is 42 degrees. Uh, it's actually um, dictated by, that's 180 minus 38 uh, degrees. So 42 degrees is the radius of a rainbow. And it comes about because everyone is, is there's all these billions of raindrops, but they're all bending the sunlight through that same angle. And so get just a single bow of light. I'm not explaining it very well, but oh, that's the reason no, behind it. No, makes perfect sense. Yeah, uh, and and they oh good, thank you, thank you, Andrew. <laughs> and they are rather fascinating. Yes, indeed. Um, uh, thank you, oh, Steve, beautiful. and stay safe on the road. Uh, that brings us to the end, Fred. We're we're uh, we're done. Um, thanks to everybody who sent in questions, audio or text. And, uh, and while I'm going through the thank you list, thank you to the audience, everybody who listens, uh, the tens of you that listen to us. No, it's not quite 10. No, I, look, our numbers have been growing steadily uh, during the year. Um, we, I, I think at last report, our download numbers were somewhere in the vicinity of 60,000 a month, something like that. It, that that's incredible. And, um, and it just keeps on growing. So thank you for uh, spreading the word. Thank you for being a listener. Thank you for being a, a supporter of the podcast and for the kind words you send. Uh, I would also in the studio for uh, doing all the legwork to get it out there onto all those platforms, the Apple, the Googles, the, the Stitches, the, the myriad of uh, podcast platforms that, that we uh, are um, available on. And finally, Fred, thank you to you. Uh, without you, it would be nothing. And um, I, I greatly appreciate um, the time you put into this. Uh, that's why we pay you the big bucks. And uh, it's <laughs> and uh, you know it's just a it's just a joy to work with you, Fred. I really enjoy it. Oh, that's good, Andrew. It's a pleasure to work with you too. And we go back a long way, as the audience probably recognises. Yeah. And it's always fascinating to talk about this stuff, and it's great to be able to share it with people. Yeah, and so uh, who knows? Thank you for having me. 
Oh, my great pleasure. And who knows what uh, great revelations we'll be able to talk about next year. We, are, we will be back. I'm not sure exactly when, but um, we're going to take next week off. Uh, but um, we'll, we'll be back fairly early in the new year. So uh, from us and, and our families uh, to you, Merry Christmas, Happy New Year. And, uh, you know, stay safe and, and we will see you in 2021. Thanks for supporting the Space Nuts podcast and bye for now. Space Nuts. You'll be listening to the Space Nuts podcast. Available at Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, iHeartRadio or your favourite podcast player. You can also stream on demand at Bytes.com. This has been another quality podcast production from Bytes.com.